Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by, and it's so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm going to do something a little different to change things up. I'm going to be taking you through a talk that I just did for my old university at the University of Central Lancashire for their 11th annual design conference week. And the theme for this year's talks were close but no cigar. And I thought it was fantastic, um, the range of approaches people took to that theme. So there are all kinds of freelancers and agencies coming up to Preston to talk over the course of the week for all the design department students. And it's always a fun time. Um, the storm kind of messed things up a little bit on my behalf this time. I got there, I did the talk, and then the station roof started caving in. So um, that's another story. But I'm going to be taking you through that talk today because my whole approach was, of course, failure and the perception of failure and actually the lessons that come from you know, it's the cliche these days, but the fact that failure is very rarely failure, but just a way to point you in the direction you should be going, no matter how long it takes to get there. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So welcome back. How are you doing? It's nice to have you all listening once again. How did you find Sarah Brown? That episode for me was one of the most empowering, inspiring and motivational conversations that I've had full stop not just on this show but with anyone Sarah is a force of nature and she you know she wasn't born that way that you know like all of us the the start of personality kit was there within but she had some pretty tough nurture to deal with in those early years and the way she bounced back from that and overcame it and found singing and went on to build a career that she's had and having and a wonderful Sarah Brown sings Mahalia Jackson project which is kicking off right now it's just truly heartwarming and there's such humanity in that story. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already heard that one, to go back and check it out because regardless of music taste or your interest in music, very few of the shows that I do on uh, on the creative condition are about, you know, the discipline that they're in. It's about the broader theme of creativity, personality and, you know, finding our way through life. So I hope you enjoyed the show for anyone who listened. Um so something, like I said, something a little different for today's show. I thought it would be fun because, you know, I've got some cool guests lined up, but they're not coming up just yet. But we've got to wait a few weeks for those, for projects to come to the fore and the rest of it. Um, but for the moment, I just thought I'd do a little me and you show and take you back through a little rerun of a talk I just did at the University of Central Lancashire, where I studied on the illustration degree from 2003 to 2006. Always nice to drop back in, but this year's Design Conference Week theme, like I said, it was close but no cigar, and I thought that was great because there's such pressure now, more so than when I was studying on students because of the um, exorbitant fees that people are paying, to come out with some sort of accomplished style or you know to walk straight into a job um, and I think there's a number of reasons we won't go too deeply into that today because I've been writing actually about that for my new non-fiction book which is now underway to a great degree it's really flowing it's called the creative condition just like this show because I always loved that concept that every human is creative and you know we make the mistake of 
twinning that with being artistic and I think that takes us then into the stereotype of bohemian artists and painters and musicians and creativity is far far broader than that and it's a human trait so I've been writing about that um, you know about the, the kind of effect of pressure external pressure whether it's parents or the industry or you know a comparison looking at social media and feeling like we've got to go out there and be these fully formed artists at such a pivotal early um, embryonic stage of our careers so um, you know so I wanted to do this talk to kind of show that all of our roads are very winding when you choose to lead a career with creativity it is completely twinned with our personality and our character so like anyone in life we go through ups downs, sideways you know um, all kinds of chaos it isn't straightforward life isn't straightforward and therefore you know um, creativity is an expression of the world we live in and our own lives and our take on things so it's twinned with that and therefore it takes the same chaotic route so I think to apply pressure at such an early stage is really dangerous and actually cuts you off from finding your your true path because you get caught up in the success trap and the ladder and hierarchies and achievement and all this stuff that you can't access until you've done some learning and, and some winding so I wanted to, I picked a specific project which was Quenched Music. So for anyone who's been following the show for a while and has read my books, you will know about Quenched Music and um, we'll get into that properly soon, but there was so many lessons in that project because it never really got going to the degree that we hoped it would when we started out. But what it became was a vehicle for us to learn so many things and meet the right people and get on our way. So I'm going to go through that uh, with a fine tooth comb and hope that it's got some value for you today. Um, a quick before I forget, uh, a quick thank you to the supporting uh, the founding sponsor, IllustrationX.com, wonderful illustration agency supporting the industry at large, doing a lot of great work. They they represent over two hundred artists now globally, um, and they're a great bunch of people. They're very supportive of things like this podcast. They help me get it off the ground and the writing that I do and all this stuff. And they've got a great belief that all the artists on their books are just that artists. They're not just commercial illustrators, you know, they, they need to be staying inspired and staying fresh and, and excited about where they're going. And they've always had a great belief in that. So I'm going to use that as today's industry insight um, is to just keep exploring that broader eyes. Remember the reasons why you were attracted to creativity and the creative industries in the first place. I hope that you felt the same magic that I did about it. You know, when I started at art college, there was this great buzz, this new step outside of school and convention and it, and it felt amazing. And I've always held daily to that and used it to guide my career so that's the tip is to follow suit and and not to you know box yourself into much you know but i can't do that because it it'll be seen as you know not my style or whatever and it's that really does crush your enthusiasm and your spirit and i think that's when you get trapped in the the job side of what we do which of course you have to manage the business i'm not stupid i've been doing it for 13 years but i think too many people um, get, they hold too tightly to that and it just kills the magic and the wonder that is so essential to creativity. So there's a lot of that going on in this story today that I'm going to get chatting about. Um, let us know what you guys have been up to. I haven't had too much feedback recently because these shows have been more sporadic. I got a lovely message this morning um, from a guy who's just tapped into the podcast and it's just a, it's a lovely buzz. I think um, because I've been doing this a while now, I think some people, like I do with the podcasts that I listen to, you just get used to it being there and you kind of carry on. But 
I really do get a kick out of the feedback on shows and you know ideas for shows. I I've had a lot of great feedback that has led to episodes, be that with a person who's put themselves forward as a guest. Which, by the way, don't be too modest. There's nothing wrong with that. I do it all the time when I'm trying to promote something. And I think oftentimes people who run these kind of shows are very, um, very happy to have guests suggested because sometimes it means we don't have to go out of our way to find them. And you know, <laughs> don't be too bashful. It's a very British trait to be quite modest and you know not see value in what we're doing ourselves. But that's going off the point. Um, news, news, news. What's going on? So like I said, I've, I've been burrowing deep into creativity um, and it's got a lot to do with this podcast. I think I've been doing this for, since 2016 now and that's six years of observing over 170 episodes worth of creativity through so many different prisms via the people that I've talked to and the projects that I've seen and the cultures that I've um, been blessed with insights to. And what it's given me is um, so much material to further explore creativity and that's something I was doing way before I started the podcast through my first book Champagne and Wax Crayons just subconsciously because I was in this industry that thrived on creativity and I just fell in love with seeing how people do it their way across so many different um, don't know, uh, cultures, stratospheres, whatever the word is. Um, so I've been writing and it's finally come about so this is what's interesting and this ties into the talk that I did at UCLan that I'm going to kind of break down for this podcast today. Um, things happen on different timelines. So I started trying to write this book back in 2016, seven, no, 17, 2017 when I was studying in London. It's five years ago now. And I started to write it very much along the same anecdotal style as Champagne and Wax Crayons was written. Now, Champagne and Wax Crayons was a book that kind of had to be anecdotal. That's how it stood out. That's how it got the honest um, insights into freelancing and turning creativity into a career. But this book had to be something different. And I didn't realise that at the time. And it just kind of stagnated. It never got off the ground. And I walked away from it. I always believed in what I was trying to do with it, which was this deep dive into creativity's nature and behaviour. But I, it just didn't work in the anecdotal style. That's not to say it's not got a large part of my voice in this book, because it really has. I'm kind of narrating and using some of my own stories, much like I do with this podcast, to then bounce back to these guests, to other insights, to case studies, to all these different ways of looking at how creativity behaves. So it's taken into account things like psychology and, you know, how does adversity benefit creativity? Because as we know, there is energy in anger, there is energy in hurt. And of course we don't seek these things, but life throws them up. And if you can't kind of bottle them and use them, or at least understand how it fits within your creativity so that you can better manage it, then it's going to derail you a little bit because there's no getting away from the, you know, the strife of life. I mean, look at what's going on in the world. At the minute, war breaking out, you know, there's, there's a, the, the climate crisis, there's you know, the COVID is everything. This is what happens. And I think that the longer you use creativity to make your way through life, be that in a career or in a, in a passion sense or a mix of the two, you do learn to, to, to thrive off that adversity or at least manage it. So um, that comes up time and time again in this book. You know, and I'm looking at um, environment, you know, how do different people thrive, whether it's working at home or in coffee shops or being on location or being in dangerous situations. Um, Olivia Kugler told a brilliant story on the, on the 100th episode of the show about the, you know, the dangerous situations he finds himself in. He, he, write, he goes and 
carries out his reportage illustration projects in refugee camps, in war zones, you know, with mafia bosses. He's got so many amazing stories. So I've been looking into that kind of energy. And um, I listened to a podcast called This Is Horror recently, which I recommend for anyone who's interested in horror like I am. And Chuck Palahniuk, who uh, wrote Fight Club, um, among other great books, talked about how he, he likes to write in hospital waiting rooms because he just loves the urgency and the immediacy and how naked people are in a kind of emotional sense. And I just thought that was wonderful. And I love that, you know, and then you've got other people who just love to be trapped in their bedroom and not leaving for days at a time because that's them and that's their personality. So it's been great fun diving into this book and I'm very excited that it's picking up some momentum now because if it keeps on the path that it is, then I hope that later this year it might just be about ready. If not, it's going to be early 2023, but it is coming. There is finally going to be a follow-up to Champagne and Wax Crayons, even though the two are very, very different books. Uh, it's been a while. You know, I've been burying, I've been burrowing away and digging into my fiction stuff. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the promos I've been sharing for Stories for the Apocalypse Volume 1, which is coming out soon. It's called Notes on the New Normal, and it's a collection of seven short fiction stories. And again, it's just tapping into this sense in the world at the moment that things are on a knife edge that people are struggling to cope in different ways you know uh, myself included like i mentioned like the climate crisis there it it really does knock me on my ass sometimes to the point where i can't create i feel clammed up and you know i feel like what i'm doing is futile in the big picture and luckily every time that's happened so far i've managed to pull it back around but this writing was a it was a kind of a catharsis for me but it was also a way of putting an entertainment filter over the dark stuff in the world you know the behaviors of people how they cope or how they capitulate under these pressures so there are stories in there there, there's one called died and prejudice which is about a tv psychic who's in trouble for ghost discrimination and there's one called granny's cake tin which is about um the dark side of why grandparents would always pull out these lavish spreads of sweet treats when you went round if you're a child of the 80s or the 90s like me you might remember that you know grandma coming out with all the penguin biscuits and the mint viscounts and the jammy dodgers and the wagon wheels and it was just obscene and um i always felt there was something darker going on there so that's a dig into what's going on there um what else have we got about the vaccination leave that to your imagination but there's um i've had a lot of fun with this book and if you've been following my social media app ben talon you'll have seen the ridiculous images of me running around trafford ball in national park in the woods with a ghost sheet on um, it will make more sense when you read the book, but this is somewhere between suburban horror and black comedy. Um, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. It's coming out as an ebook on April 7th. I'm off up to Manchester as I record this tomorrow to record the audiobook. So it's going to be out in digital formats. And the idea is that I'm going to release four sets of seven or eight short stories, all fiction, all about the world. My editor not too long back described them as Black Mirror meets Roald Dahl, which might be the biggest compliment I've ever been paid about anything. <laughs> because that is massive for me. Roald Dahl was a staple part of my youth. Um, but the idea is four volumes, sorry, four editions of seven or eight stories as ebooks and audiobooks, then building up to a collected volume one, Stories with the Apocalypse, in a nice print paperback edition. So watch this space. Follow the uh, at Ben Writer Instagram account if you want the full updates for that. I'm always posting new short stories on there and you know little updates and insights to how that's all going. So that's enough about me and my writing. Go and check all that out at bentallenwriter.com. Um, plenty of new illustration projects coming up, but some of them are longer-term stuff that I can't release at the minute. So apologies if I've been a little quiet on that front. Um, it's all cooking nicely there, though. Like I said, get us your news at Ben Talon. Even if it's just for a quick retweet, I'm always happy to share out interesting stuff. 
So, let's get to it. Um, let me see. Quenched music. So, I mean, many of you might not even know this ever existed or remember it, but back in 2009, I moved into a flat in Manchester with a guy called Danny Scarrett. So I knew Danny at university. He was studying creative writing at the same time that I was studying illustration. And we kind of connected through football. We played five-a-side a little bit together. Didn't really become mates. We were just kind of acquaintances at the time. And then down the road when I felt that Preston had kind of, I'd done six years in Preston, three years at uni, three years building myself as a freelancer. And by this point, I was off the ground as a full-time illustrator working for The Guardian for the big issue for When Saturday Comes, more or less exclusively editorial. And that was because it was an easy gateway into the illustration market. You know, I think the idea is that for an ad campaign or something that's got much more riding on it, much bigger budgets, much more pressure, it's bit more of a gamble to take a punt on a new illustrator who might not be as reliable as someone who's been in the game a little while. Whereas in editorial, you know, today's news is tomorrow's chip paper goes the expression. So if you mess that commission up and, and, and maybe, you know, they're not happy with it, it's not going to do too much damage to the newspaper that they've commissioned like a spot illustration in, for example. So that's what I was doing. I was writing, I was, you know, I was working across the board for all kinds of different magazines, creating editorial illustration. And I've been full time for about a year by this point when I moved in with Danny. And not too long after we'd been living together, Danny used his love of music to tap into the Manchester independent music scene. So this resulted in him setting up this crummy, horrible little blog with a logo that he'd created himself without any skills. And it was just a, like a pint glass with a bit of water on it. And it's a quenched unsigned. So I remember keeping a curious eye on his comings and goings as he would go up into town and lurk in bars like the Castle or Gulliver's and review the local open mic nights of the local, you know, club nights, gigs or whatever it was, he was just putting his creative writing into use to go and do that. And I remember at the time thinking, ah, oh, it's pretty cool that he's into this music stuff. And he had this really broad music taste and he knew a lot more than I did. And I saw that as a potential way that I could kind of attach myself to what he was doing in order to get into designing EP covers or single covers or album covers and gig posters for bands because like a lot of stereotypical art students I'd done that you know I'd re recreated like the designs for Blur and all of my objects of affection and the bands that I was into so I saw Danny's access to this new area of, uh, of expertise and all these people hanging out in pubs and being passionate about music as a way that I could maybe you know, pick up a few commissions, get some album covers, get some gig poster commissions, but also just build his little projects and offer something that Danny didn't have. So while he could help me out by providing the writing and the reviews and writing bios, I could offer up artwork. And suddenly we had this thing and we called it Quenched Unsigned, which was really kind of silly because we limited ourselves to the unsigned part of things. And it always came with this stigma that, you know, I suppose in the same way that self-publishing gets uh, an unfair bad rap because there are a lot of people who just want to pump a book out without any real consideration. Whereas, actually, you know, there are a lot of good writers there who are doing cool stuff and they've got their own reasons for going independent. Maybe they've had a bad, you know, traditional publishing deal. Anyway, I said to Danny, well, let me come with you. We'll, we'll brand this thing up. I'll give it a better identity than what you've done. And we'll, we'll make a website and we'll see what happens. And that was it. So... To give you just a little bit of background, so it was just the two of us and we, you know, we got a few photos done and we, we quite quickly thought, oh, we've got something here, you know, we, we've, there's two of us, we've got a little company, we can go and start pushing it. We didn't have a clue what we were doing, that's the bottom line. 
So all we were really doing was um, using these objects of affection, these passions that we had, to go and kind of work out what that meant for us. Like, how did that chime? Why did we feel such a way about these things? And how did that stir our creativity? And therefore, which direction moving forward could we point that same creativity to engineer opportunities to work with things that we felt this way about? So to give you some background on Danny, we had two very different um, upbringings, both from the UK, but Danny grew up in uh, on a North London council estate. I think it was Holloway, if memory, memory serves. I think there's two years separating us. I'm 39 at the time of recording. I think Danny's 37. And he would go with his mum in the summers to roadie for Iron Maiden. That was his mum's job. How cool is that? Um, so she had all this kind of music taste and all this expertise, uh, not expertise, all these insights and, and, and this fast track to the music industry that Danny grew up around. And then meanwhile, his dad was also a passionate music fan with his own different tastes. And he told me that the two would compete for his allegiance in terms of music taste. And what he ended up with then was this very broad, three-dimensional, rounded musical education. And he got to school and he wanted to study music at GCSE. And you know what the music teacher told him? You shouldn't do this. You're not coming on this degree because uh, on this GCSE course because Gary Newman's not real music. <laughs> so Danny had gone to him and, you know, he tried to look cool. said, look, I'm into this electronic stuff. It's Gary Newman. And the teacher obviously had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about that. I stopped him from coming on the GCSE. You know, can you believe that? It's crazily bad advice and a really narrow-minded kind of roadblock. But there's a you know there's a story arc here that, that benefits Danny, and we'll get around to that. Meanwhile, up in Keighley in West Yorkshire, I grew up in a post-industrial mill town, and you know this was pre-internet. You have to remember, so my horizons were a lot more narrow than Danny's. So I was obsessed with Blur and Oasis and Britpop because that's what was on the radio at the time and that was one of my only channels of alongside the enemy and things like that and the odd newspaper. These were my only access to music. So I hadn't been to any gigs. I didn't go to a gig until I was 20, can you believe that? I was an fo obsessive football fan so I was too busy at Ellen Road watching Leeds United to be going to gigs um, or hanging around the street corners, you know, kicking balls around. So I was very different. So I knew what I loved and I still loved it with a great passion. But when I met Danny and moved in with him, I didn't have that. So again, this was my ticket. I still wanted to do that stuff. I still knew the tests that I had and I wanted to apply my creative skills to that. So what did we do? We leaned on our skills. So we started out creating gig posters for a club night that we should never have had. You know, we'd known no experience whatsoever in booking club nights. And yet we had passion. We had a desire to do it. And we knew that if we were given the right tools and we had a good sound guy and we had the venue, that we could carry off a pretty cool club night. So we talked our way into it. And Danny managed to tell a few stretched truths to get us into Factory 251, the kind of um, exhumation or the, the, the rekindling of, of, of Hacienda, fact, you know, Fact 51 back in the day, a classic Manchester nightclub uh, run by Tony Wilson and, and like Factory Records, which was just utter chaos, but has so many great romantic music stories that come out of that, like the Happy Mondays and bands that came out of that scene and Joy Division and the rest of it. Um, and we got a club night and we called it rather cheekily, no, night to, no right to be here because we, we, we didn't have a right to be there. We shouldn't have been doing that. However, it was within our, uh, our kind of, it was in a comfort zone. You know, we didn't have experience, but we knew that we weren't overreaching too far. So I would art direct the nights and create these cool posters and sometimes commission, you know, other artists for like 50 or 100 quid and just say, look, do something quick. I'll give me some existing artwork. I don't have much money, but I can pay you a little bit. Um, 
And we ended up with a whole set of posters, and, and that's what I did. And Danny booked the nights, and he got these bands that he'd been meeting on these, you know, when he'd been out reviewing. And suddenly we had these, this pretty cool night called No Right To Be Here that a lot of bands wanted to play. So we kicked off with our specialism, but we were very much finding our feet in terms of quench music. And we didn't know what, like I said, we didn't know what it was. This was just us playing and exploring, and I guess this is the overriding story of this whole um, Close But No Cigar. So... EP covers, single covers, album covers, it all started to follow. And what we found through the traction that we were getting through Danny's gig reviews was that bands, you know, further across the UK started to hear about what we were doing. And Quenched quite quickly got this little reputation as this cool new indie blogging website thing where they could also provide artwork and, and bios and stuff. And I remember doing an EP cover for a band called Boy Jump Ship. And we believe it's still going from Newcastle. And I loved that. I'll share it on the social media, actually. Keep an eye on that, Ben Talon. Um, and I did the EP cover with this kind of collaged, skeletal, anatomical, monstrous artwork. And a few months later, I always remember getting tagged in this tweet from the drummer who got it tattooed full back. Can you believe that? Um, that was nuts for me to see my artwork kind of enshrined in such a permanent way. That was the ultimate compliment. That's when you know that someone's not just kissing your ass when they say they like what you've done. But what we found was the reason, the good thing here was, the budgets were very low. You know, at best, you might get a band who was prepared to put up 300 quid. Let's say it's a four-piece. The way you would sell it to them was like, look, guys, 75 quid a head. You'll spend 75 quid on a night out in London um, or wherever, you know, over two nights out. Sacrifice those two nights and you've got some professional artwork that you can move forward with your band. And most of the time, people would buy Sometimes you might have to come down to 100, 150 quid, therefore you do a quicker solution or you'd find a way to make it work if you wanted to work on it. But what it meant was the low budgets gave us this creative freedom, which was beautiful. And it meant that we could use new techniques, you know, we could try collaborating with new people, could do something that we'd fancied doing that maybe a commercial client didn't want to sign off on. So all of a sudden, it was pretty cool. We had this broadening portfolio of styles. And for me as an illustrator, I started to just get new tips and new tricks and, and know how to work with designers and know how to collaborate with someone and, you know, negotiate creative direction with a band, for example, or, you know, in terms of factory, the club night. How do you add that? You know, how do you make, how do you visualise or, or give a visual identity to a club night? These were just, all of a sudden, it seemed that every week we were learning something new and we were developing. And sometimes it didn't work. We'll get to that a bit in a bit more depth later on, but it was just a great way to find our feet and broaden things. Um, and I ended up working with hard rock bands, with reggae-infused indie bands from Withenshaw in Manchester, uh, hip-hop artists. It was very, very cool, and I got to meet loads of really interesting people. And just by being a part of that scene, it broadened our minds. You know, it sounds tacky to say that, but it did. We were out a few nights a week talking and having these impassioned conversations, and we were part of something. And when you're a part of something, and when you're in that right environment, oh my God, creativity just goes through the roof. So that was a major perk. So where did all this take place? So anyone who's familiar with Manchester will know Gulliver's. It's a cool pub up on Oldham Street, and it's a little bit smarter these days, but back then it was cowboy Wild West. You know, some of the nights that went off in there were just absolutely brilliant, like reggae, ska nights, open mic. People were just freewheeling in there and using Gulliver's as a place to hang out and meet like-minded people. And it was just awesome to be involved there, and we kind of had a base 
So Danny started doing an open mic night on like a Tuesday night and that was just a way to plug in. And along the way we had people like Ray Morris came and did a set there. She was quite regular with Ray actually. This was long before she built the name that she's got now as a leading music artist in this country. We had Jake Bug come up from Nottingham and you had to admire that dedication. You know, you'd be paid to get on the train, come up from Nottingham, play an acoustic set, get back down on the train from Nottingham, all on a weeknight. And I imagine he was working at the time because, you know, as we do when we're chasing these passions, we have to fund it somehow. We had Marky e. Smith. I always remember Marky e. Smith was at the bar and he was really pissed. And he came in and he wanted to play, you know, which was an awesome compliment that he wanted to play a set hour up and mic night. But he was really pissed and he tried to jump the queue, so we had to kind of tell him to wait. And he kicked off and we had an argument. And he was fine in the end. And he kind of, you know, he got another pint and he waited and he played this set and it was just beautiful. Um, just an antagonistic little bastard of a character and I think that's why he's so loved. But to get those people coming and playing our night when we were just kind of chanting this stuff and making it up as we went along was just brilliant. And and what we found was it became this self-fulfilling prophecy. So we, you know, we started to believe in what we were doing and we started to make it so. And if there was something we didn't know or we came a cropper on, we learned how. We talked to people there. You know, there was a, I was one of this guy called Steve who, who did the sound engineering for our open mic night. And Danny shadowed him every week. And slowly but surely, he started to get a sense of what it meant. And he learned these skills himself. So suddenly, he was able to do the sound. And, and you know, we were just adding little strings to our bow. And it was very, very exciting. Um, and, and for any of you guys, you know, maybe you're at university or maybe you've got a shared studio. I hope you know what I mean when, when I talk about the importance of being a part of a scene and, and having that collaboration and the buzz that goes on with it. It's a really great feeling. And I've always found that it really charges creativity. And I know I have many friends who are much more introverted than I am. And I know that they get the same kind of kick from being a part of things like... Um, what's the like twitch channels you know and doing kind of drawing sessions on there and it, maybe it's digital maybe you're more comfortable being at home and not confronting people face to face and i think creativity is just universal and it caters for all of those things and as long as you own whether whatever you are and use that creativity kind of molds to it and that's what i found by being a part of this at gulliver's um so as things moved forward you know we got a taste for what we were doing and we started to believe that it it meant something and it was right for us. So we got more confident in the things that we tried to do. So, you know, the little note I made on the slide when I was doing this talk was that we were opportunists. And I think we really were. And sometimes we fell a little bit short, but never catastrophically. Only in a way that we'd have to talk our way out of something. So we went to Jeff Thompson's Unconvention in Manchester. Now, Jeff's a lovely, lovely guy. And he put on these events. And um, I think Unconvention chimed with what we were doing at Quenched in the sense that it was very fledgling. It was something new. And Jeff was kind of finding his feet with that event, much as we were finding our feet with Quenched. And when we saw this lineup, they had like the plan for, it was called Unconvention Factory at the time, and it was done in Macclesfield. And they'd got this old, um, I think it was a, an old church, the building. And they, the plan was to record an album in one day. So each band had a 30 minute set to perform live, go backstage, produce the track dump the track on the album and at the end of the day come away with this very rough and ready album and throughout the course of that day while the bands were doing this they would come back on and be a part of a talk or a discussion panel or just chat to people in the venue and go and have a beer and um, work their way around and true to form at this point we felt very cheeky and we felt like we you know we belonged everywhere even if we didn't so Danny and I talked our way into being in the in the access all areas backstage bit um, so we you know we, we put together this big impassioned 
plea to be at the event in the first place and Jeff being the lovely guy that he is I think he probably felt a resonance with what we were doing and what they were doing and they let us in you know we probably shouldn't have been there to begin with but we especially shouldn't have been backstage talking to people like John like Don Letts and John McClure from Reverend the Makers a wicked Sheffield band and what we found was everyone was just you know they were passionate and we had these brilliant conversations and what I did at the time was I had this chat with Don Letts, and then John McClure. And we talked about some really deep, interesting stuff. So I just got this little brainwave, and I thought, well, we've got this blog. We've had these chats. It wasn't an interview, but it sounded good. And if I write that up, that'll be awesome. So I went back to both of them and said, would you be kind enough to sign off on me just writing that, what we've said there, writing it up, putting it on the blog? And they went, yeah, of course, do it. It's fine, you don't have to ask us. And that was awesome. So what I came away with was this interview with, uh, you know, frontman of Reverend and the Makers, massive band at the time, getting Radio 1 airtime. And John's very passionate, and so is Don. They, they don't hold back. You know, they're very outspoken, passionate people talking about things like racism in the industry, about, um, you know, good ideas getting lost among ego and bullshit on the internet. Don was very passionate about. And I came away with these two pieces. So I illustrated them. Um, you know, again, this is the thing. I think restrictions encourage necessity and the necessity for me was I needed some supporting images I didn't have the money to pay for photographs didn't have a photographer to shoot the guys at the time so I illustrated them I drew on what I knew best and I channeled that specialism and then um, about a month later I sent that stuff to Design Week and Design Week not only published a feature on uh, visual communicators working in the music industry leading with our quenched posters but they went front cover with my Don Letts illustration so I got the front cover of Design Week so all of a sudden I was like okay this is cool so I'm moonlighting in this whole quenched music thing on the side when I probably should be promoting to my illustration clients and yet I've just got the front cover of Design Week, which I definitely wouldn't have got had I just been doing my editorial illustration. Wow, that's really cool. There's a double up here. There's a feedback loop. And all of a sudden, I'm building this biosphere among these skills that I'm just playing with and learning. And that was a major eye-opener for me. Um, shortly after that, I have to admit, our egos probably got a little bit out of control. We It entered the realm of make-believe because we were still just finding out but we started to just ride this crest of being into this, you know, this this moment, this um, this thing that was going on in Manchester and beyond. And we started doing things in London and all over the show. And then Quenched, you know, started to get this little name because we were getting people like Don Letts and John McClure. What people didn't know is that we'd get crashed the access all areas and just kind of snatched this conversation and used it as an interview. But it didn't matter. So much of the stuff that you read out there has probably got a similar story. And it's very rarely just straightforward, you know. I think you have to make these opportunities yourself. So at this time, it's important to say we didn't know what Quenched was. We had this blog. We were running a few interviews. We were writing gig reviews. We were doing artwork. It was just a bit of a jack-of-all-trades thing, but that's what Quenched became. And, um, you know, I, at, some t at some points I wanted to be Tony Wilson because I loved what he did at Factory and, you know, signing up bands and maybe we'd make it into a record label and start putting out records and... Or maybe I'd be the face or enemy and start interviewing people for the front cover and all that and become an editor and a creative director. And like I said, we were moving on our feet, but we were also a little bit out of control by this point. But I don't think that was particularly unhealthy because it meant that while we made a few mistakes and we got a bit too giddy, we knocked down a few doors, you know. So meanwhile, while I, while I was doing this and trying to, you know, play Tony Wilson or editor of Enemy and the rest of it, Danny was also overreaching. 
like I said, he had this musical background, but he had no kind of experience beyond the bit of sound desking that he'd been doing at Gulliver's until he went into factory one night, got really pissed at a club night, and during a conversation with the DJ, he told the DJ that he could do a better job given the opportunity than what he was doing. So naturally, this DJ was not offended, but a little bit affronted. And he said, okay, all right, big dick. Um, if that's the case, come back in a month, put your money where your mouth is, and we'll have a bit of a session, and we'll see who comes out on top. And I'll never forget being in my front room the next morning and Danny Skerritt coming in. If anyone's read Champagne and Wax Crayons, you'll have read this story because it's in that book. Um, but Danny walked in and he went, pardon my French, but he went, I've fucked up. <laughs> I went, you what? He went, and I'm thinking, oh God, who's he kissed? Like, oh, you know, what's he, what's he fallen into on his way home or whatever? And he went, I told this DJ I could DJ better than him. And I burst out laughing and went, based on what? And he went, exactly. I don't know, but now I've got to step up because I can't embarrass myself, especially not with this quench stuff that we're doing. So what Danny went and did, and you have to bear in mind this is about 10 years ago now, and I think things were a little less tight in terms of security, but it was such a good scene, a tight-knit scene, that we got talking to all these people who ran venues or put on their own nights or were in bands or pub managers. We had this, you know, we had access. We could get into places. So Danny went and talked to people. I remember him spending a lot of time in Soup Kitchen at the time, practicing on the decks downstairs. And he signed up for a course on Apple's Logic, which is like the equivalent of GarageBand, so the sound and um, you know music production program. And he learned. It's as simple as that. He learned how to do it, and he went back. And I don't, I'll never know. I don't think anyone won per se, but he didn't embarrass himself. He did a short set of factory. He got that accolade under his belt, and from that point on, he started to learn to produce electronic music and kind of pour this lifelong musical education that, that came without ever finding any technical education because of the, like I mentioned earlier, the knock that he got at GCSE level. Therefore, he never studied. And what that turned out to be was this massive advantage because he had this unconventional sound um, and he started to go under the name of Dirty Freud. And he played Glastonbury two years ago before COVID and I think he's going to be playing it again soon, all being well. And, you know, he's, he's working with all kinds of musicians now and he's got numerous EPs out. He's building up to an album as we speak. He's working as a mixer, as a, uh, a masterer, a producer, a, a, you know, editor. It's, I love seeing where his music career has gone and he's very much qualified just by doing and learning. And that was the starting point, that big mouth moment through Quench Music. Um, simultaneously, it was always the beginning. Of the, it was also the beginning of the decline of Quenched because at this point we were doing too many things. We were juggling too much for it ever to kind of find one tangible form. But I think that's fine because it never needed to be that. It never needed to be enemy. It never needed to be factory. It was our thing. It was our baby. It was our vehicle to get into areas that we had no other way of getting into. Hence the club night. No right to be here. So, you know, off the back of that, again, I started writing. I started ranting on the blog because I was frustrated with some of the, you know, the, the constraints within free rant, freelancing and the quiet periods and the rest of it. That's what got me into doing champagne and wax crayons. I worked with an um, independent film director called Mark Ashmore in Manchester on a production called The Lost Generation. And I said, can I be your art director? He said, yeah, I don't have a budget for one and I wasn't going to have one. I was just going to kind of do it with the crew. So if you want to come in and get some experience, be my guest. So I knew that I wasn't being exploited because I had no experience as a film art director. I shouldn't have been on that set. But because of Mark's lack of budget, it wasn't exploitation, it was opportunity. So I went and learned and I created these, you know, banners on like lining paper from B&Q, a hardware store in the UK. Um, I did it 
on a beg, steal or borrow a no budget approach, I often end up spending some of my own money to get the materials. But I came away with a series of mask designs, images, costume designs, hand lettering for the posters. I really strengthened my skill set and my portfolio through this project. And even though I often felt guilty because I should have been emailing editorial illustration clients, in fact, this was a massive door opening in my illustration career into all new different skills, which to this day pay a part of my income. So there's a story that comes off the back of the banners that I created there. And again, anyone who's like red champagne and wax crayons will know what happened there. But I just wanted to stop and, and I wanted to look at two different points of view here. So in the talk at UCLan, I had a massive cross on the screen because I wanted to look at what was wrong with Quenched. What on the face of it failed? Hence the close but no cigar theme to this talk. And I started to think I was a bit of a performer. So I started painting live while Danny was doing his DJ sets. And in a different world, if we had the budget for the production for that and like projections and whatever else, that might have been quite cool. But what you have to remember is I'm a six foot two Yorkshireman with a big head, big ass, and I do not look comfortable performing. Therefore, I was banging about on stage while he's looking really quite cool because, I mean, Danny's just way visually cooler than I am and he's an electronic musician, so he's made for that. So that went wrong. We didn't do it again. We got booked for a gig when no one remembered booking us because the management changed. Painted for about an hour, left and thought, fuck that, not doing that again. That was a waste of our time. Um, at times it was borderline idiotic what we were trying to do because we were a little bit too um, egotistical by this point. I'll admit that. It went down that road. We were stretched thin. You know, the lost generation was one thing, but we went too far doing all this stuff and it meant that there was a little bit of a lack of focus. My illustration work got momentarily neglect neglected, which meant it took a little longer for this, um, what felt like a terminal quiet spell. It stretched a bit longer than it should have at this time, but I couldn't have known at that point the big benefits that were going to come out of this, you know, all those feelings we had to go through. But what those feelings of imposter syndrome, of uh, being the idiot performer and being stretched too thin, what they did was helped us to find the parameters of our circle of competence. Now, circle of competence was something that I heard from a talk in Manchester not too long back, and it helped me to get a, um, a better grasp on where I should draw my own boundaries. So I'm very happy, as I've, as I've hopefully clearly articulated in this podcast, I'm very happy to roam far and wide. I'm very happy to go and um, find out where my skills belong. But at some point, you have to work out where your circle of competence ends. And once you step outside of that, you should look to bring in specialists and collaborate with other people to make you know these bigger ideas happen. It doesn't mean you can't produce way bigger ideas than where your circle of competence ends. But where should your role of that end? You know, I always remember after the Lost Generation project, I remember thinking, yeah, I could do this. I could be a designer for film. And then I did another project with Mark called Portal, which was much bigger. We had a bit of budget by this point. And we worked for six weeks on a web series and they were like, you know, sometimes 20 hour days and it was freezing sometimes. We were knackered. We were dragging around big props because we didn't have the money for runners. And I got to the end of that and all the things I had to do, like managing all these different personality types and coming up with, um, you know, 3D props and the rest of it. At times I felt way out of my comfort zone and I didn't want to do that again. And then I went over to Annie Atkins' workshop in Dublin to interview her for the podcast. So anyone who's familiar with Annie's work will know that she's a graphic designer for film. And she works with my, uh, Steven Spielberg, Wes Anderson. Um, she works on Penny Dreadful. She's done all these major productions and she's the loveliest person and so, so talented. 
But what I got a, very quickly got a sense of when I was listening to Annie do her workshop for her students was that she was just so well tailored for this and her circle of competence was quite broad and she was able, because of the film budgets, to bring in the right specialists and learn how to collaborate and she's the perfect person for that film role and I realised I was so far from that that I should only be really bringing my inky kind of specialist stuff to a film production. And I felt great about that because I'd eliminated something that I shouldn't be doing anymore. And I knew where I belonged in that ecosystem. So that's another thing that came out of Quenched. Even though it kind of, you know, the whole no cigar thing, it never really got anywhere in terms of a music company. But, you know, once again, I learned that I shouldn't be an art director or a designer for film. What I should be doing is making my marks for it. And that is really the ultimate way to learn where you should belong, is to finding out. But that said, there were diamonds in the rough. So through these unconventional paths, like I said, Danny started producing his own music and very quickly found success in that area. Um, the story goes then, so with the banners that I created and the set designs for The Lost Generation with Mark on no budget, off the back of that, those banners got seen by a creative director at World Wrestling Entertainment in the States, um, and they commissioned me to create 15 backdrops for all the villains um, in WWE at the time, including CM Punk, Brock Lesnar, AJ Lee, Daniel Bryan, Cody Rhodes, um, Cesaro. So anyone who's into wrestling will know just how big those names are. But this was my absolute dream commission, and it was well paid. It was for WWE magazine, and they ended up doing it a second time a few months later. And not just that, but the creative director there tapped into my hand lettering that I'd been doing because of the lack of budgets at Quenched. And he helped me to build an entire portfolio of hand lettering through his advice and the old commission. And to this day, I get a decent portion of my living from hand lettering for campaigns now. So let that be a lesson um, and think about your own circle of competence and apply your own personality to it. This is a lesson time and time again that I think people overlook is they maybe look at the path ahead and think about, you know, design agencies and how do I work my way up this ladder? But there was a beautiful quote on one of the podcasts that I did with Michael Phillips Moskowitz, who was the former chief curator of eBay's front page. So he would, you know, make it look how it looked to try and get the right mood across. And he went on to form uh, a company which put out an app called Mood Rise. And it was all about digital nutrition. And what his thing was, you know, we have government guidelines on cigarettes, on booze, on food and the rest of it. But we don't police the digital content that we consume, I think the average was 12 hours, 7 minutes a day of, and what that does to our mood and our mental health. You know, we know that social media messes us up. We know that we start comparing ourselves and we read too many bleak headlines, and it's dangerous. So he created this app called Mood Rise, and what he said about his own journey was, you know, because he'd achieved success in all his previous roles, but he, he'd suffered mental health issues all his life, and he hadn't ever really used that in terms of making his own way in his, his own creative career. And what he said was, it's all well and good working your way up the ladder, but you have to make sure the ladder is leaning against the right wall. And I thought that was an amazing quote, and that just summed it up. So when I, when I say circle of competence, I think that's the thing. You have to use your personality and your passions as a compass. And this isn't being ideal. It doesn't mean that you don't do any work that isn't absolutely 100% on board with that. But ultimately, no matter what you do, if you build your, you know, your visual identity and your direction on your personality and your passions and, and only put the commissioned work in there that fits that, sooner or later you will find that circle of competence and you will attract the work that you enjoy doing. So there's a big lesson that, that came largely through Quenched. We created a campaign. The last, this was the, big, the last big thing that we did with Quenched in 2013 was 
um, a campaign called Express, and it was about the emotional benefits of artistic expression. And it was for mental health charity CAN, which stands for Campaign Against Living Miserably. They're a wonderful little charity, and they focus on the statistic that three guys to every girl take their own lives, which is really, really tragic. And it's owing to the kind of um, stiff upper lip. It's a very British thing. The stiff upper lip can't talk about my feelings that guys have to deal with a lot more than girls, I think. Just as a generalisation, but you know, the statistics back that up. So Calm focus on breaking that down and they lean a lot on the arts in terms of, you know, using these easier filters to have deeper conversations. So music, you know, maybe it's a shared love of a band and you can go to that gig and you can have an easier conversation than sitting down in a quiet room with a coffee, for example. Or maybe it's professional, maybe it's like your belonging and your purpose that your career in the arts gives you. But they do wonderful work and... I approached them and said, look, we've got this network of all these skilled people that I've built through Quenched, um, photographers, designers, musicians, we'd like to do this campaign on your behalf. And they went, fantastic, brilliant, we'll support you with our resources, we'll give you some places on the website, we'll give you any of the tools that you need, you can come and interview our people about the mental health statistics. And somehow, I ended up going away and interviewing Danny Dyer. John McClure, because I already met him through the previous Quench stuff that I talked about. Mick Foley, three-time WWE champion. Um, Ian Stone, a brilliant comedian in London. Stephen Merchant, as you'll all know, through The Office and Extras and his own work beyond that. Um, graphic design legend Ken Garland, who made the First Things First manifesto. And it was absolutely incredible experience. And do you know what the reason was for me interviewing them? Because we didn't have any budget and we didn't have anyone else to do that. Therefore, I had to do it. And what I learned was that I bloody loved it. I loved it. I was having these conversations about creativity all the time, which is why I wanted to do this campaign in the first place. Because I wanted to check if the catharsis and the, the empowerment that my creativity gives me was the same for lots of other people using creativity in their life or in their jobs. And it really was. That, that was the overriding thing. And we did a lot of work and a lot of people kind of stepped up and said, I've never really talked to anyone about this, but I've suffered depression quite badly. And, and you know, you've done this campaign that's made it a bit easier for me to you know, come forward and talk about that. And that was one of the biggest rewards, if not the biggest reward that I've had in my entire career. Um, it's beautiful. To think that we created a bridge that people could step forward on and talk was just, I mean, in terms of humanity and empowerment and, and way bigger than commercial projects, that's what it was. But don't be fooled, off the back of that, that's how Quen that's how this podcast started because I realised that I could talk to people and I could, I had an empathy that I could draw and a meaningful conversation out of them. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that in the arts and do something more with that. So, you know, that's really how I got the first inclination that maybe I could interview that in a professional format, and that's what happened. So I'm not going to bang on too much longer because, you know, it's gone on from there. I've done a lot of podcast episodes. Quenched kind of stopped being quenched in terms of what it started as at that point. I've continued doing artwork, posters, album covers, podcasts all the things that we started doing i've used and danny has used to create a real stability in our in our creative careers because it means that i'm not just reliant on you know editorial illustration anymore and danny's not just reliant on writing in theater or reviewing bands it means that suddenly we've got you know we can move on our feet now we can be flexible i can i can use those interviewing skills to be commissioned to do podcasts i can do hand lettering now if the illustration's quiet or vice versa and I've been writing loads, you know, like I say, I've got the books coming up soon and there's books out there like Champagne and Wax Crayons and Your Mum, which is my little collection of short stories. And I think it's a combination of my personal need for variation in my creativity to stay energised and stay, you know, focused. But also, 
um, what I learned through Quenchton, how I keep my various artistic expression outlets fresh, you know, and and I just love the exploration and the magic and the learning and, you know, you might have seen Lend Me Your Ear that I did with Andy Cotterill, uh, the music club photography collaboration. That was very much a produce of Quenched because suddenly I had some kudos and I could go to a photographer like Andy and say, look, I'm, you know, I created direct creative director of this company and I've done a lot of work in music I'd love to do it with you and Andy was open to that and off the back of that project you know I ended up getting arguably my biggest commercial project today which was the um, Axe Links uh, global rebrand for the packaging and the deodorants and the the uh, shower gels and it just goes to show by doing these uh, passionate projects and learning on the job it really is amazing what doors it can open that you don't expect sometimes and we continue to do that to this day we continue to explore and generate new opportunities because we learned that we could and we know where not to get too carried away now because we're a little older and wiser um so that's the story really um i mean you know the the Len Maria stuff led to a commission for the new york times front cover doing a Joni mitchell 50th anniversary of her seminal album blue and you know, I just, I'd like to stay excited. I like to stay fresh. And that has since quenched, become a big driver. And there's one big word that encapsulates it all. Fun. Keep the fun. Whatever you're doing, whatever career path you're on, whatever bills you've got to pay, don't tell yourself that you can't make time to create work that is just for you, that is fun. There are always ways to do it. You know, on a bus journey, using the notes app in your phone, sketch pad, whatever you do, there are always ways to do work that is fun and you should champion that and go forward with it. You don't have to be as ridiculous as us and create a company like we did with Quenched, but there are many, many ways to do it on the terms of your personality that will, believe me, open doors in your career. So I hope that's been of some use. That was pretty much the talk that I gave at UCLan last week. Um... Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear your own equivalents of this, of exploring and maybe coming a cropper, but maybe also finding ways and, you know, skills you didn't know you had or connections you didn't know you could make. I find it really fun, these kind of stories. So let us know on the social, at Ben Talon. Um, you can hit Danny up at Dirty Freud. Quenched, unfortunately, is no longer active as a website, but it's very much still the collaboration between us, which continues happening to this day. I'm going up to record my audiobook with him for Stories for the Apocalypse, Notes on the New Normal, my new horror collection of short stories which is out on 7th of April going up to Manchester to record that with Danny tomorrow so you know who would have thought they'd be working in a recording studio and we'd be doing audiobooks and all this stuff but that's what exploration does and I think sometimes you do have to come close but not get that cigar hope you've enjoyed it big thank you to UCLan for having me on in the first place to do that talk um, big thank you to the supporters of the show the Association of Illustrators and founding sponsor illustrationx.com have a great week nice one guys I'll see you in a bit